welcome to Tales, Tunes, and Tomfoolery, starring Jerry Springer, along with Gene Galvin and me. I'm Megan Hills. We're recorded live in front of a brilliant studio audience at the Folk School Coffee Parlor in Ludlow, Kentucky. My daddy came home every day from there. And here he is, ladies and gentlemen, Jerry Springer. Jerry! Man, another week, Ooh, huh? It's flying. Got it. Another day, another dollar. And by the way, we've got uh, Casey Campbell back with us. Hey, Casey, how hey, you doing? Everybody. Oh, good. Our, Glad uh, to be back. Casey's our music coordinator, and uh, as often as we can, we try to get him in with us. He's our team member from the very beginning, and uh, he's going to do a song in a little bit. Jerry's going to do his thought for the week, which we always look forward to. We speaking had of, uh, just I'm speaking gonna, of. Speaking yes. of Casey, we were talking, yeah. Gene, you and I were talking before uh, the show. Uh, yeah. We were talking about uh, Mickey and I today had been looking at old videos and we have yes. a video of our trip to uh, Cuba. Yeah. And we have yeah. the recorded video of you at that nightclub. When I say nightclub. It was oh, behind yes. that. Yeah. That. That yeah, so and cool. you were you. We have you playing uh, down by the riverside, but also the song. Uh, you you played that slow ballad. Oh, it was beautiful. Oh, uh, Carolina. No, no. Why? Oh, uh, no? Uh, what? What? What'll I do? Oh yeah, the old uh, Irving Berlin song. What'll I do? Oh, oh yeah, you killed. It was. Oh, thank great. you so much. And the I audience, love that the song. audience was going wild, and I have it on a video. We'll figure out. Once you yeah, we'll get it on, Casey. Work this. We'll get that the video on. But that, yeah, you were great. Future show, we'll have you back on, and uh, we'll play a little bit yeah. of that because it's interesting to have that coming out of uh, Cuba. The, we did, did a trip to Cuba. I don't know, maybe four years ago. Uh, Casey, Megan, myself, yeah. Jerry, actually, uh, like my wife, four years ago wife. next week. Actually, uh, all right. Yeah, all right. I say we're about at our Cuban anniversary yep. here. So yeah, and we went there. Uh, specifically to meet with, talk to, hear from singer-songwriters, uh, folky kinds of people from Cuba. I mean, we call it Americana here. They call it, it Cuban was, music. Yeah, I think it was five and years ago, not was four. It? Okay. It was 2016. Shut All right. Yeah. All right. But at <laughs> any rate. Uh, yeah, because it, I remember it was during the campaign of Hillary yep. Trump okay. wasn't yeah. president yet. And I remember, you know, a lot of people Makes were sense. talking right. about that. Yeah. yeah. But anyway, Casey uh, <laughs> brought his guitar and he was our folk singer and he uh, represented uh, us in American folk music and people loved him. And by the way, uh, so we're going to swing back to Casey in a minute. Uh, I'm going to pull the curtain back a little bit. The way we organize this show is I sort of take responsibility for the first third. Jerry does really the heavy lifting in the middle. It is the Jerry Springer podcast because people want to hear, do hear, and enjoy his analysis of situations in America, current events. And then we end with uh, some music. Yeah, it's the whole combination that it works. And it's Tales, Tunes, and Tomfoolery. And last week, the opening was disastrous. Even I can have some self-reflection and say, God, I <laughs> F that up. And, and when I, did it uh, hit you that but, it was terrible? When, when, 
kind of deep into the bit and I thought, God, this isn't working. Well, Gina, I will give you this. I will give you this, man. You stuck with it. Even if you you have to, you have to, that's a, that's a pro move right there. You didn't let it. You have to believe, you got to believe in your bit and you get real pissed off when your cohorts (laughs) do not believe in your bit. Yeah. Because Megan, we were not, they got to carry some of the. Load, we were not kind you know scene saying? partners. We were not. We did not no. say yes yeah. and. So no. <laughs> I got a slew of emails, and I purposely because I've got this thing about keep it fresh, keep it fresh. I I do what's called in this business, and it's why I'm the senior executive producer. And by the way, <laughs> a Facebook Live watchers, you're listening and watching live. Look over my left shoulder. And you'll see on the wall a certificate that came this week, and I put it up there. And it came, Megan, framed. It's not like you had to go to Kmart and get a frame. It was framed. Now, here's so you know it's fancy. We can't read it. What is that? We can't read it. Right there. I I see you pointing to it, but it's It's got a seal. Mm-hmm. It's got a seal on it, glistening. Yeah, seal. Megan, you know what it says? I have no idea, Gene. It doesn't say, it does say senior executive producer, but they, and this came from the International Producers Association, lifetime senior executive producer. And I got the plaque to prove it. Anyway, I do what's called a rip and read. I get on my fax machine, which is, you can't see it. And I pulled off. So I'm just going to read a sample of a fax. This one is from Bob. From Ogden, Utah. That's interesting. Never heard that first person from Ogden. Your producer, this is addressed to Jerry Springer. Jerry, dear Jerry Springer, it says, your producer, Gene Galvin, who's also, I understand, a co-host on the show, is a bungling, stupefying idiot. Uh, never mind. That that just rip and read. Danger yeah, you'll rip and read. read. Here's something yeah. that I you did. You should look at these ahead of time. Here's something <laughs> that I did. I, after last week, created a and put it in the podcast office, a suggestion box, because I thought- Who's in that, your home, I, Gene? You and Bonnie. Pardon me? We have an office? Yeah. <laughs> it's just you, no, you walking Megan, by no, all day with no, suggestions? <laughs> Megan. <laughs> Megan, you're not hearing me. This is the pod, Megan, the podcast office. Yeah. Yes. So, so. I, and so I'm just going to pull out a couple. Just is that the up. living Where's room? This, is that the living office room located? behind? In yeah. Jean's condo. This one. <laughs> yeah. This one says, what is better, Swedish fish or M&Ms? That's not a serious <laughs> suggestion. And by the way, Megan, That's I not don't even have a suggestion. I don't a have a suggestion over what people put in what here. was here's, that suggestion i don't know i agree with There's you not one. ridiculous here's one. Oh, this is a suggestion f you and the horse you <laughs> rode in on that is a suggestion now that now that is a that suggestion. one casey how'd you okay. get up there so quick i suggest <laughs> yeah well here's one. Oh, this Maybe is key. ridiculous we want megan for producer that was mine. That was, <laughs> that was mine, Jerry. I confess, says. That was mine. <laughs> Air mailed in. Let me, let me ask you guys a question. And Casey yeah. and Megan, you would not remember this, but in the mid 60s, late 60s, and into the 70s, there was a huge movement across America to desegregate schools. 
and, and there are a bunch of reasons for doing it. And for example, in Boston, a very celebrated situation, they did it through a thing and they weren't the only place that did it, so-called forced busing. They, the government just said, we're going to take all the kids that are in the white schools and all the kids in the black schools, and we're going to split them into half and they're going to be bus crisscrossing. So we've got half black, half white in schools. And they did that in a lot of places around the country. Uh, now, that was back in, let's say, 1970-ish. Today, and I just came across this because I'm working on a project that involves my old high school. I graduated in 1961, uh, a long time ago. And this organization is called, very respected organization, uh, it's kind of a think tank, Economic Policy Institute. And in February of 2020, that's very recent, they summarized in their report, quote, well over six decades after the Supreme Court declared separate but equal schools to be unconstitutional, schools today remain heavily segregated by race and ethnicity. And by the way, couple that with studies, multiple studies that show that African-American kids who are in, in, in uh, this is generally true, 75% of which are in heavily segregated schools score because of that situation far worse than their white counterparts. So segregated schools are hurting kids of color. I think you probably could put Latino slash Hispanic kids in there as well. So as African-Americans today claim institutional racism, and Lindsey Graham says no institutional racism, and many conservative politicians, if you use this example, as well as voter suppression will be another one, would be clear cases where the system gets powers in the hands of certain people, and then they rig it to help certain people and to hurt certain people. But should schools, this is a question I didn't want to throw out there. Do you think schools should today, based on the Economic Policy Institute's findings, should we go back to figuring out how the hell we're going to desegregate our schools? Because in all of these years, in six decades, it hasn't changed. What the hell right. is going on? And it's having a very negative impact. And it's partially why blacks say there's institutional racism. It is because our our Voting neighborhoods, mm-hmm. our neighborhoods are segregated. And uh, so if you don't have something like busing or you don't do something about the transportation for a while, cities were trying magnet schools as you know, Gene, because you, you you taught or administered and also administered it at one of the primary ones in Cincinnati. Um, but you, uh, so magnet schools was a way to attract kids to go to a school that was something they wanted to study rather than just in their neighborhood. But as long as kids go to school in their own neighborhood, since most neighborhoods are segregated just by housing patterns, that's problem number one. And problem number two is, since most people of lower income still happen, I'm talking about the major states, live in cities and not the suburbs, uh, schools are financed in most places by a property tax. So the property values in poorer neighborhoods, by definition, are going to raise less money. And therefore, 
uh, schools that are, are segregated and have people of color or minorities or people of low income, they're going to have less of an investment in education. Mm-hmm. They're going to have less money spent on um, whether it's getting computers, on books, on programs. Teachers don't want to teach in certain neighborhoods uh, for whatever their reasons are. And that's why we get suffering. You know, no, no one tries to get trans, no teacher tries to get transferred out of a nice, uh, well-funded, wealthy suburban neighborhood where they've got all the great art programs, sports programs. Uh, you know, it's just, it's a pleasure to teach there. And uh, that's why we're getting that discrepancy. There was a reason why the court in 54 said separate but equal is never equal. It's not. And you, you raise a great point. Um, that, is, that is what is happening. And it's absolutely right. The schools are as segregated as they've ever been because our neighborhoods still are. You know, once in a while, you, I mean, even when they go into a poor neighborhood, it's usually gentrification. So they go into an inner city neighborhood. And what's the first thing they do is they tear down the buildings, build these beautiful condos that are very expensive. And the poor people that were living there, poor, I use the term in terms of income, they they can't afford the rent, so they move out. And, you know, so the pattern hasn't changed because, and I talk a little bit about it in, in, the, in my rant tonight, but because it, we do have structural racism and it's, it's, it's clear as day. And... Uh, so I'm not optimistic when you have these current politicians in. You know, if you no. add to add to what you said. Got another week, yeah. And this, as you mentioned, this has been was in my professional my wheelhouse, and the data is clear. In schools that are less affluent and largely urban, but also rural, by the way, mm. the test scores are predictably very low. And the schools that are suburban, wealthy schools or private schools, the school scores are very high. And it isn't just the funding issue because there have been experiments done where you can adjust for funding, put in extra money into uh, schools and impoverished neighborhoods. But the second hindrance is when you have a poor household and race isn't the issue. It could be a Native American household. It could be a white Appalachian household in the hollers of Appalachia, uh, or it can be an Hispanic barrio. It doesn't matter. Race isn't the issue. If you are grappling with the chaos of poverty, you don't have the idyllic kitchen table at night where people are having dinner with the dining room table sure. and having stimulation and, and kids being driven off to dance class or uh, the family listening to uh, opera, or, you know, the, the stimulation isn't there. So those children are greatly handicapped. But anyway, you're, I just wanted to raise you right. and no, Megan and Casey, you may have some thoughts too of like, how can we still be here 60 years later and we still suffer from it? Well, that is, that, uh, it, it what you stated is exactly right, I would say, except that race is the issue because and, and, and the people in rural areas who vote the way they do. Often vote first on the issue of race 
not realizing that they're cutting programs, they're voting against programs that would help them. Yeah. It's, it's unbelievable. You know, it's like a, the famous case of the swimming pools that were closed in Birmingham, Alabama. Probably the same thing in Cincinnati, by the yeah. way. But in Birmingham, Alabama, they closed the public swimming pool in the, uh, in the 50s uh, because the courts had ruled that b- black children were allowed to swim in the pool. It had to be integrated. And the whites there uh, didn't want their kids swimming with black kids. So what did they do? They shut the pool for seven years. There was no public swimming pool. And, and they had huge, beautiful pools in the city of Birmingham. And they, they didn't have that. So they punished their own kids. And they have testimony today from kids who grew up, they're white kids, wow. and said, no, they shut the pools because blacks were going to get in it. And, 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 and actually, it's kind of what I talk about in my, uh, in my rant tonight. So this okay this, this, well i'll just go ahead with it and then it's you just gave the good lead-in to the rant so you've made up for your last show <laughs> where she asked what the best color was <laughs> Dean, forget it you don't have to call me after the show you you, you bought Thank yourself you, some you bought, bought yourself another week time okay so here's the issue which gene raised how can these Republican rural white districts keep voting Republican against their own interests. These lower income white people vote for candidates who want to cut welfare, even though most people on welfare are white. Low income whites need public schools, public transportation, public health clinics, public recreation, often food stamps, and yet inexplicably, they keep voting down these programs and candidates that support these programs. And we wonder why. Why vote against your own interests? The answer, of course, has nothing to do with rational arguments. It doesn't matter how many facts and figures you present to these voters. The reality is it all comes down to race. And if a program is viewed as helping Blacks or Hispanics or Asians or Muslims, they cannot bring themselves to support these programs. Race trumps economics every time. And I use the term purposely. For a significant part of our electorate, race and culture are the underlying forces in electoral behavior. And it's been that throughout our history. Before the Civil War, the issue of slavery determined voting behavior. After the Civil War, the South became solidly democratic because the Republicans were seen as the party of Lincoln. And that stayed the case for a hundred years. When Lyndon Johnson, on the back of Kennedy's assassination, pushed through the Civil Rights Act of 1965, the South overnight became solidly Republican. It was all about race. And not just the South. George Wallace brought the issue North. We were introduced to the dog whistles, not sounds that only dogs could hear, but voters with racial bias could hear as well. Bussing, law and order, because the code words of the day 
So you knew where a candidate stood on integration and minorities in general by their use of those words. And that would determine one's vote. If you were for busing, you were for integration. If you were against busing, no matter what excuses you gave, you didn't really think it was important to integrate the schools or whatever. And of course, the weight of the race issue continues this day, not just with the obvious hate and racism of Trump and the white supremacists, but with Republican-led voter suppression, almost exclusively in neighborhoods that are Black, Atlanta, Detroit, Philadelphia, Milwaukee, as well as the issue of immigration, keeping Blacks, Hispanics, and Muslims from immigrating to our country in the first place, the Statue of Liberty be damned. Republicans knowing that race overwhelms all other issues play this card to the hilt, even to the point that they no longer just use subtle dog whistles. For example, Tucker Carlson, now the new leading voice on Fox, is pushing his replacement theory. Simply put, he argues that permitting people from Africa, South and Central America, and the Middle East to come to our country would, in effect, replace whites as the dominant race in America. Two points. First, so what? Who cares what the color of one's skin is or where they come from? We're all from someplace else. And doesn't the very first of our constitutional amendments, the very first of our Bill of Rights say we can have any religion we want? And second, here's a spoiler alert. In 25 years, whites won't be the dominant race in America anyway. And it doesn't have anything to do with immigration. Ever since the 1950s, the percentage of non-Hispanic whites in America has been shrinking every single year. And the reason is that whites are having fewer children. Whether it's cultural or more white women are choosing not to marry or pursue careers and marry later, the fact is whites aren't procreating as much as non-whites. In fact, as of the last census, a majority of Americans under the age of 18 are non-white. I'll say it again. Right now, a majority of Americans under 18 are not white. So that's reality. And realizing that, if we are to remain an economic powerhouse, we need to increase immigration because our population is aging. If we don't increase immigration and build up the population between the ages of 18 and 55, which is the working age of people, we won't have enough people working to support the vastly increased population moving into retirement and into social security. Without immigration, we'll have to either cut senior benefits or raise working people's taxes unbelievably, substantially. The point being, America has always been dependent on the ingenuity, talents, work ethic, and brain power of immigrants, not to mention their kids who now have the opportunity to grow up here in America and pursue their careers. 
So arguing against immigration makes no economic sense and, of course, no moral sense. And the cries of Republican-supported white supremacists chanting, Jews will not replace us or immigrants will not replace us is nothing but unabashed racism. It's the latest incarnation of it. It overwhelms all other issues in defining voter behavior as it has throughout our history. Look, I'm not saying everyone who is a Republican is a racist, of course not. But at least recognize, those of you who vote Republican, that for the last 55 years, if an issue has racial implications, your party will always come down on the racially insensitive side of that issue. That's the truth. So you won't hear it on Fox. Very nice, Jerry. Thank you. Thank you. You You know, you mentioned the busing, uh, the, the busing side of that. And I, I recall hearing, and it's been about 20 years now. Um, but the, you know, starting from the Montgomery boy, uh, bus boy. And you're from Alabama, um, right? Yeah. 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 I was born and raised in Alabama. I'm, I'm, until I uh, graduated college in Alabama, I moved, you know, and then I moved up here. Um, starting from the Montgomery boycotts, uh, the Alabama state legislature's solution to integration of bus lines was to defund bus lines. And so wow. they turned to the yeah. line item veto. And uh, wow. to my knowledge, through the turn of the <laughs> from the 1990s to the 2000s it was still happening that it would be um proposed in the state budget and then it would be line item vetoed that the state would give zero dollars to public funding to public transportation so if birmingham wanted buses then birmingham had to pay for them same for montgomery same for mobile and it happened for decades and the amount of working class people that were hurt by that, no matter the color of their skin is just absurd. But as you said, it all came down to, we refuse, we refuse to acknowledge that African-Americans and people of other color deserve the same as we do. And they used legislative powers to try to take that away and have, and successfully and punish themselves in the process. And that's punish themselves so in the process. It. And it, it is. And that's what we do with public education, just as we were talking about yeah. earlier, you know, with neighbor. I mean, so much of public education money is yeah. neighborhood <laughs> funded. And so then the argument comes, well, if they will, then, you know, we can we in the sub, suburbs or, can fund our schools, put up a so school. Why can't and they? It's the only and, thing people have control over. So, of course, they vote down the school levy and it's. Yep. Y- Exactly point, right. And good on point. and on top and on top of doing that, uh, now you have this push from national politicians and state politicians of wanting to use state and federal money uh, that would usually go to public schools to give public choice. And so then you are they're funneling money into private schools, which I just really I I feel like if it is a taxpayer dollar, it needs to go to a public institution. And that is, you know, that that is just another mechanism by which money's being funneled from the public sector into private hands. And, and 
race plays a very big part of that. I do agree that, and, and Gene, you brought it up that inequality, uh, income inequality is another form of prejudice. And it is, shows itself in a lot of these kind of things, but, uh, race obviously plays a, yep. a major, major. I factor. remember a guy named Mike Ford, a close friend. He was Jerry's political guru and a mutual friend of both of ours who died some years ago. And he had this saying, you remember, Jerry, and it's what Megan Hills just said. He said, said, people get mad at government through school tax levies. Yeah. Just as you said, Megan, it's the one thing you can vote on. So people take out all their anger against government by just voting down those school levies. And in the yep. process, like you say, Kate, Casey, they, they hurt their own interests. Uh, but it's all sort of... Uh, scrambled together mm. scrambled eggs and it creates a mess it sure does all right well moving along <laughs> that was excellent conversation and yeah. jerry again thank you for your um for your perspective on that yeah uh, well said with us this evening sure. again we do have the very talented mr casey campbell welcome back casey Oh, well, thanks for having me. Now, I understand that this is kind of like part two. Last time you were with us, um, you sang I'll Be Gone. Yep. And this is kind of. But you came, came back. back. I came back. I came back. <laughs> oh, man. And Don't tease us like that. <laughs> you had mentioned that this was kind of the second part to it. So ex it expound is, yeah. on that for us, my friend. Uh, so we're going to play the second part of a video here. Um from Buffalo Wobs and the Price Hill Hustle. We recorded this song at the Burl in Lexington, Kentucky, um, back in January of 2020, which is so, it's so weird to see the video because you see people, people huddled together <laughs> and yeah. having a great time and just, Sans you know, masks. just as, as though the world was carefree. It's just the craziest yeah. thing to see now. Um, uh, but, uh, but we had a we had a wonderful night. Um, we had a sort of a I don't know three day run through Kentucky of this particular weekend. Recorded some videos, and so uh, we played Gone, uh, like I said last week, um, for the podcast. And so we're just it's we're kind of kind of pick up right in the middle of that video and play an instrumental of an old uh, golly I actually don't know how old this song is. It's called Angeline the Baker. Um, some people call it Angelina Baker. I, I learned through my bandmates that it's Angeline the Baker. Um, and so uh, we do a great instrumental version featuring Scott Reisner on the banjo with this song. And so we're just going to kind of pick up. Uh, this is the start of our show that night, and we just sort of led right into it. And here we go. <laughs> It's an old fiddle song, if I'm not mistaken. It's
Um, Man, that just makes you happy. You know, that's fantastic. Yeah, doesn't it? <laughs> yeah. That was Casey Campbell with Buffalo Wobs and the Price Hill Hustle. Casey, tell us where we can find you on the interwebs. Uh, PriceHillHustle.com is the website. It's got our tour dates and uh, merch and any other pertinent information. You can also uh, go to our YouTube page there, Buffalo Wobs and the Price Hill Hustle, and subscribe and like that. And uh, Facebook, Instagram, all the usual spots, Spotify, iTunes, your favorite illegal download site, whatever it may be. Whoop, whoop. All right. And speaking of the interwebs, you can like us as well, the Jerry Springer podcast on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter. Um, Give us a review. Leave us a five-star review, if you would, please. It's how all those that run the computers know that you are listening to us. Uh, So let them know what you think, only if it's really good. If it's bad, Gene will reply. Um, It's a great way. (laughs) That's part of his senior executive status. Um, But (laughs) lifetime status. (laughs) so thanks for listening tonight we're going to take you out tonight with casey campbell and the buffalo wobs and price hill hustle and jerry springer with down by the riverside (laughs) thanks guys well i'm gonna lay down my heavy load down by the riverside Recorded live at the Folk School Coffee Parlor in Ludlow, Kentucky. Thanks to Patrick Kennedy for writing our opening song and to you for listening. Check out our website at jerryspringer.com. I'm gonna lay down my sword and shield down by.